From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Doctors and scientists have been harassed in their homes, received death threats and been slandered in online places. The reason? Well, it's been commentating on the COVID-19 pandemic. The Medical Republic's resident COVID blogger and acclaimed science writer Bianca O'Grady recently embarked on some research for nature to explore the experience of dozens of researchers and physicians during the pandemic. Bianca joins us again on the podcast to talk about what she found out in this area. Welcome back, Bianca. Thanks so much, Frankie. So it seems that professionals who have commented on COVID has been subject to a, a unique kind of abuse, both online and offline. And you spent months researching this topic. What did you find out? Well, one thing that really stood out was that this is unprecedented. The level of abuse and harassment and trolling, both online and offline, is a new thing for most of the scientists that I spoke to. And and many of them are scientists who were already um, reasonably high profile, or at least who had spoken to the media in the past on the exact same topics that they are now speaking on, you know, whether that be you know, origins of viruses or, um, you know, spread of, of um, kind of airborne particles, so, you know, or epidemiology. So they weren't strangers to being in the public eye and being on social media, but pretty much none of them expected to receive the kind of abuse and attacks that they received. And uh, they were universally shocked by the the level of vitriol and hate and and really vile vile stuff that they've been you know s- subject to on social media on emails by phone um you know by letter and, and and in some cases in person and so i believe you sent a survey to a number of scientists how did you conduct the research and what were the main questions that you were asking so this survey was actually based on one that was sent out by the Australian Science Media Centre. So they first became aware that there might be an issue uh, when it was actually raised by one of their board members um, that the, they had heard of scientists being attacked, uh, receiving abuse. And so they did a survey of their own of about 50 Australian scientists, which um, really kind of raised a warning flag that there were quite high levels of um, abuse uh, that these scientists were experiencing. And so um, when they told Nature about that, Nature uh, decided to undertake its own survey sort of more internationally. So um, we used, uh, we kind of accessed science media centres around the world, but also sent it out through, um, you know, university networks and around the world. So in the end, we had about, I think it was 321 scientists who responded to the survey. So obviously it's a, it's a biased sample in the sense that these were scientists who chose to respond to the survey, which um, for the most part would suggest that they, they did so because they had been, they had experienced something like this. Um, but uh, what we found was that um, many of them were experiencing, so uh, one in 10 said they always experienced trolling or personal attacks after they spoke about COVID in the media. So, you know, that's that's 32, 10% of scientists, 321 scientists. Um, 15% said they usually did. Um, 29% said sometimes. And it was a relatively, so I think it was about uh, 20% said they never did. But the the type of abuse was really staggering. So um, the I guess the stuff that was most alarming was that twenty two percent of those who um, who sort of experienced any kind of attack, negative effects, twenty two percent experienced threats of physical or sexual violence. So one in five scientists 
who um, have spoken up in the media or on social media have ex- have received threats of physical or sexual violence. 15% were sent death threats, um, either by phone, by email, on social media. Um, and we even had six scientists who responded to our survey who'd experienced physical attacks. And so these included uh, one uh, researcher in the US um, who received a white powder, a letter containing white powder that was sent to his home. And so that then, you know, got the, the FBI involved. And, um, but, you know, I, speaking to him, he said he, within 10 seconds of tweeting anything now, he will get some kind of an abusive comment and within 10 minutes he'll have received a death threat. So, you know, it's just, it's quite staggering. And, you know, some of these scientists are controversial figures um, for various reasons, uh, but it doesn't excuse the behaviour of people towards them and, that you know, there's no reason for them to be subject to these kinds of abuses. And, and you know, many of the people are, I guess, what you would call uncontroversial figures. They're just epidemiologists doing their job. They're virologists doing their job. Um, they're, you know, they are just scientists and yet for some reason it that's and, and I'm sure there's numerous PhDs in this already, you know, they are that there's something about this pandemic that has just um, fueled this epidemic of or I guess what WHO would call the infodemic of, of hate and abuse and harassment. Did you notice any uh, difference in the way that different individuals were treated? You know, was there a difference between the treatment of male and female scientists and doctors, for example? Um Yes and no. So I guess no in the sense that both the Australian survey and Nature survey didn't show significant differences between men and women in the whether they received abuse and in the frequency of, of abuse. And um, and the survey wasn't really granular and granular enough to to show whether there were differences. I guess between um, men and women, but or you know based on ethnicity or religion or sexuality or anything like that. But certainly in the interviews that I did for this story, um, it, it certainly becomes fairly clear that women are subject to much more sexualized um, abuse. You know, threats of rape, comments on their their you know physical features, um, you know, dismissing them because they're just a woman. Um, and uh, scientists of colour receive much more racist abuse, uh, you know, go back to where you came from or those kind of things. Um, and so the I think the type of abuse and the, the kind of um, focus of the abuse does differ between, based on somebody's um, personal characteristics, if I could, if I could call it that. Uh, and, and this is certainly, I think, has come out, you know, with previous um, work on, abuse, social media abuse, trolling, that sort of thing, is that it, it will target difference. It will target anything, you know, if, if you're not a white male, then there's something about you that could be picked on, that can be that can be focused on as as a kind of target of this kind of hate and, and aggression. So it's a it's a different experience, definitely, between men and women, between uh, you know, what scientists, white scientists and scientists of colour. Um, I, I don't know about sort of, uh, you know, LGBTQ scientists, but I would imagine that's also something that would be um, a target for abuse. And was there any commentary on what these individuals' employers, you know, the universities that they're working with or affiliated to or the research institutes or hospitals, was there any word on the kind of support or if any support is available to these individuals and what that 
might actually look like? Yeah, the impression that I got from doing this was that institutions have very much been caught off guard by this and are, I would say, woefully underprepared to support their scientists and their their doctors and their nurses and their their personnel who are experiencing this. And I think that's, you know, that's something that's a, a wider issue, you know, which we're seeing in terms of abuse of healthcare workers, you know, abuse of doctors, receptionists, you know, vaccine clinics, uh, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I think, you know, this is something where the science and medical um, kind of uh, community is, is playing catch up on. Um, you know, we had some some people who said they were supported by their institution, that they, they did report it. A lot of scientists didn't report it to their institution, which I think maybe reflected perhaps the fact that they, they just were so, I don't know, maybe caught off guard by it. They felt that it was something that they had to deal with themselves. Maybe they were embarrassed by it. Um, but some of them, you know, didn't report it, um, which I think is is something that, you know, should be communicated by institutions to their staff. It's like if you receive anything like this, you need to tell us. Um, because also, you know, you shouldn't sort of go through this in, in alone. You shouldn't go through this in silence. And, and certainly I've had scientists reach out to me since publishing this story saying, yeah, I, it's good to know that I'm not the only one that's going through this. Um, so there's sort of things that... Uh, people that that uh, um, interviewees said did help were things like just literally having their institution say, okay, we'll report this to our security, we'll get them to look into it. You know, one case, the security, um, uh, university security actually tracked down the individual who'd sent this threatening letter, uh, th- a threatening email and basically did the equivalent of a cease and desist and, uh, and, they, and this person was never heard from again. So the that's good. Um, you know, they've assisted liaising with uh, police or investigators um, when the threats have been of a more serious nature. Um, you know, things like providing a car parking space closer to the office so they're not as exposed. Um, one thing that was a very simple measure that quite a few people said they requested uh, was simply removing their contact details from the university website or the scientific institution website so that their phone and email address weren't available weren't accessible um, or having, you know, having the emails and things directed to somebody else who could act as a, I guess, a filter, um, you know, that that can really help as well. Um, even because, you know, these things, it, it may be that it's a sustained campaign, which is, but I think probably more often than not, it is, you know, a one-off sort of backlash or, you know, you somehow, something you've written or said ends up on a website some kind of right-wing nutjob website somewhere and, you know, it'll it'll die down but you need help in that sort of interim stage to just to handle it, to, to actually not have to open up your email every morning and see, you know, horrific abuse and images that people have sent. You know, that's a, just a, an awful thing to go through when you are the target. Um, some of the other things were, I mean, I think counselling is obviously really important for because a lot of the scientists were really, really distressed by this, in fact, um, it's like forty-two percent said they experienced emotional or psychological distress, which is, to my mind, probably a low on the low end. I would have thought it would be much, much higher. Um, and uh, you know, in some cases, they were requesting security, you know, a, a guard posted at the lab because they were concerned about potential physical attackers. Uh, you know, I think it's hard because, you know, the, the chance that the uh, yeah, online abuse will actually escalate to in real life abuse, I guess is probably relatively low, but you just don't know if somebody sends you an email saying, we'll teach you what fear is, you know, we're watching you. 
how do you know how real that is? How do you know that you are safe when you leave your office at night on a dark campus that's largely empty? Um, you know, that that's a pretty awful thing to have, you know, constantly be watching your back. And so, you know, to, to be able to just provide a security guard, and I know that's a cost, but I think it's a cost that institutions need to consider as being part of doing the business of science communication, on, particularly on topics that stir this up. You know, that, that's an important step for people. And Bianca, what do you think that this all means for the intersection between sharing science and being publicly available to defend and or, you know, comment on that research and science and obviously these people wanting to protect themselves and stay in the profession longer and possibly to do so, you know, take down their social media and maybe, you know, become more recluse to the public mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, do their research in more relative silence. Was there any commentary on that? Yeah, it's a real concern. There is very clear evidence that this is having a chilling effect on science communication on scientists communicating. And that is a huge, huge concern. Um, You know, very specifically during a pandemic, I mean, we need scientists and doctors and anybody, you know, experts, you know, genuine experts. We do need to hear from them. We need to understand, you know, what they're thinking. We need to be able to see this evolving. You know, it, it can't be opaque because, and it shouldn't be opaque. I mean, science shouldn't be opaque end of story, but particularly, you know, during a pandemic, it's they being able to kind of see scientists talking about their work online, communicating about, you know, whether the epidemiologist saying, well, this is what I think based on the evidence, you know, that people are accessing that information, they're using that information, um, you know, they're reading about these things in the media. And, and, you know, quite a few of the scientists I spoke to said, I'm not doing media interviews anymore, I'm, I'm avoiding them. Um, because they didn't want to risk exposing themselves to more abuse. Um, and that is a huge, huge concern, um, you know, and, and particularly around certain topics. Uh, so, for example, both the Science Media Centre um, people that I spoke to in the UK and in Australia said, you know, they were finding it very difficult to get scientists to uh, comment, uh, to do press briefings, for example, on things like the um, COVID origins question, you know, where did, where did the virus come from? Because it's become such a politically uh, fraught area for a scientific topic <laughs> that it's, you know, no one wants to go there. And similarly, you know, so people are wary of talking about lockdowns or, you know, things like suicide rates during lockdowns became incredibly politicised and anybody saying, look, the suicide rates haven't gone up, you know, was was attacked by, you know, viciously in the UK by the kind of anti-lockdown crowd saying, well, you're hiding the evidence and, and you know, you're just a kind of government shill kind of thing. So it's, it's a real concern and it's going to um, have a dampening effect on science communication at a time when it's actually really starting to flourish. And I guess one positive thing that did come out of this was, you know, the fact that so many senior scientists have been communicating their science, you know, in the media or on social media, whereas, you know, for a long time, science communication was viewed as something, you know, it was a bit unseemly, you know, you didn't talk to journalists and you didn't talk on social media because it's, you know, you did the science and it was it was kind of frowned upon as being a bit showy and that's completely changed. And so now you do have people like Anthony Fauci in the US, you know, you have Professor Sarah Gilbert who was one of the co-inventors of the um, AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, you have them 
on social media and talking to journalists and doing press briefings, you know, that is fantastic. It's it really and it sends a clear signal to younger scientists that this is part of your job too. You you're doing the science, but you also are, you know, a part of that is talking about it and communicating about it. And I think that's a really big step towards making science more transparent, um, to making science more understandable, um, more accountable as well. So, you know, I, I think maybe, you know, part of this challenge is just naming this problem and actually drawing attention to it, which I hope this, you know, this feature has done. Um, and then the second part is, is to ensure that the support exists so that when this happens again, and it will happen again, um, you know, whether that be gun control or talking about, you know, chronic fatigue or Lyme disease, you know, anything where people feel they are not heard or that they don't like what science, the scientific evidence points to, will get this. And so I think science needs to be prepared for this in the future. Bianca, thank you for your time. Thanks, Frankie. The Tea Room is brought to you by the reporters at the Medical Republic. Production assistance, the music and artwork for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time.